Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. If you've been listening to the show, you know, just like you, I've been on my own personal journey to build my empire. I've recently started a new business called Bia that helps women tackle their period problems and hormonal imbalances using a natural whole foods approach. If you're suffering from bad cramps, irregular periods, fatigue, bloating, stay tuned because a little bit later in the podcast, I'll share a bit more about my company, Bia. But for now, let's jump into today's episode. I want to welcome this week's guest, Alicia Yoon, to our show today. Alicia is the founder and CEO of Peach and Lily, the originator of the Korean beauty trend and brand that offers the best selection of Korean skincare and K-beauty products. Having experienced severe eczema throughout her life, Alicia struggled to find effective skincare that delivered meaningful results, but was still gentle enough for her sensitive skin. Born in South Korea, Alicia had long relied on K-beauty to help her in her skincare journey using ingredients and formulations she wasn't able to find in Western beauty brands. On a quest to bring these insights to the US, Alicia left her role as an investment banker and traveled to Korea to attend esthetician school and study K-beauty alongside trained chemists. Alicia launched Peach and Lily in 2012 with the goal of making innovative, effective, and gentle K-beauty inspired skincare accessible to all. In our episode together, Alicia shares how she started her business 11 years ago with no business plan, self-funded the entire thing from her apartment, and even had $7 at one point in her bank account because the business was growing so much. She also opens up about her first business that was in fashion and the biggest learnings and mistakes she made there. We also talk about the myths people have when starting a business, how she moved through her fears and left the stable income she had to start Peach and Lily, what she had to unlearn from corporate to excel as an entrepreneur, and so much more. I personally love this one because Alicia has so many insights from her experience and is very open about sharing the do's and don'ts of getting a business off the ground. Welcome to the show, Alicia. Amazing. Thank you so much for having me, Yasmin. I'm a huge fan of your podcast. Thank you. Well, I'm a huge fan of you for so many reasons. I admire how you built the business. I love how you transitioned from corporate to entrepreneurship. I know we had similar backgrounds in finance. So this is going to be a fun one. You are such an open book, which I appreciate. So I'm excited to jump into it. I'd love to start with a question. Actually, it's something you said in another interview that really resonated with me. And you said, you know, in order to be a successful entrepreneur or a successful business owner, you need grit, common sense, passion, and belief in yourself. Can you share your thoughts on this and maybe what you think some people get wrong when it comes to starting a business? Yeah, absolutely. I did go to business school and I did have a business background before starting Peach and Lily. And so oftentimes, you know, when I talk to people who are aspiring entrepreneurs, you know, they're like, wait a minute, but I didn't get my MBA yet, or I don't have that same business background. Should I start the business? And having now run Peach and Lily for 11 years, our Peach and Lily and Peach Slices brands are now five years old this year, but the company is 11 years old. And so being an entrepreneur for 11 years, you know, I look back and I'm like, first of all, it's not like I'm accessing materials from my coursework. 
at business school, right? And also like the valuation models I was working on at Goldman Sachs, I'm definitely not working on that here, right? So there's some softer skills and yeah, some hard skills that are translating to to the workplace, but most of what I've done at Peach and Lily is brand new to me. I've never built a website before. You know, I don't, I didn't know a thing about influencer marketing. In fact, you know, in 2012 when Peach and Lily first started, that wasn't as big of a thing. And so what I always encourage people with is that the biggest thing that you really want to have when you're starting your business is your head and your heart have to feel a hundred percent passionate and okay with it. Meaning it's going to be hard, right? As you know, like as an entrepreneur, times get really, really hard. And if you don't love the thing that you're doing, it's really hard to keep waking up and really putting 100% into it. And it does take 100% of you. But the other part is upfront, you really want to get your business model right. So if there's something in your head that's telling you, and again, you don't need a business degree to figure it out. You just need that common sense to look at your business model and be like, okay, I don't think this is actually going to be a sustaining for-profit business. Something in the business model like isn't working. Like The cost of goods, as a very simple example, is just too high to maintain a profitable business with all the other costs that are going to go into it, right? And so there's like certain elements of your business model in the beginning, you want to iron out and you don't have to iron it out immediately. But before you really start scaling, you want to get that piece right. And again, there's no playbook really because every business is going to be pretty different. You really want to take a look at that and use that business judgment that I know people have, right? Because it's just mapping it out and being like, this actually doesn't make that much sense. Trust that instinct and go with it tweak it, fix it, figure out a way that makes it work. And then, you know, once you get those pieces right, it is a lot of tenacity. It's a lot of tenacity and it's a lot of believing in yourself that you can figure it out. And yet it's not, you don't need a degree in XYZ or experience in XYZ. And I always encourage people, if you have those elements, you can do it. Gosh, I just am such a believer in this and I'm living proof, right? I mean, of course, yes, I also have the finance background, but I was working with companies that were making over $2 billion in revenue. What I was doing there is not translatable like directly to BIA, which is you know an, a growing business and we're much smaller than $2 billion. But it's like you said, and it sounds so cliche, but living in it now, what you said in terms of you really need to be passionate about something. And I know before we went on the podcast, you were so kind to talk about my business. And I was telling you, yeah, we have a product that supports women, but I care more about just supporting women through education and their hormones and bodies. And that fires me up hearing about your, every woman has her own story. And it just gets me so fired up of what can we do to support women that through especially in the early years, there's so much unknown. There's so much up and down. I know scaling brings a whole other host of items, but you're really proving yourself and having that mission and really believing in you know what you're passionate about is so critical. So it sounds super basic, but it's very, very true. And I'm excited to dig into your story because it wasn't always glamorous at all, especially in the early days. But I'd actually love to start with your upbringing. I'm actually very fascinated in for many reasons, but you're born in the US, moved to Korea at the age of 12. 
what was that experience like? And what was it like moving as a teenager, right? That must have been so tough. So I'm curious just to hear about your thoughts around that time. Yeah, it was two moments of culture shock. So I was born in Korea and came here when I was a baby, like a year old. So pretty much grew up in the US. And then when I was finishing up elementary school, my parents were like, we're going back to Korea, you know, for my dad's career and went to Korea. And it was definitely culture shock, right? Korea, you know, still is, and especially at the time, a pretty homogenous country. And I think it was interesting because people are seeing me and I look Korean, but at the same time, my upbringing is in the US. So like, I'm not quite relating, even though it looks like I should be relating. And very quickly, they're like, oh, okay, you're from the US. But it was just a totally different experience in going back to Korea and doing this like reverse immigration back to Korea. But you know, I actually, I like adventure. So it was exciting at the same time to explore a whole new country and get more connected to my roots. You know, I spoke Korean. I learned to speak Korean a lot better when I moved there, but I spoke Korean because my my parents spoke Korean to me. But, you know, it was things like, what are we going to have for dinner versus like talking about more complex things with people outside of your families. And so that was an interesting shift. And then, you know, I was there for my formative years. So the last year of elementary school, middle school and high school. And then I moved back to New York and I go to Columbia University for college and it is a melting pot and it is back in the US. So there was another moment of culture shock where I was like, for example, in the classroom setting, I went to an international school in Korea where it was taught in English. So at least academically, there wasn't that much of a disconnect there, but you're still in this country and the Korean culture is all immersive. Like even in this international school, like there were much more elements of like Korean culture and most of the students there actually were Korean. And so for example, like when I went to college in Korea, there's this deference to elders and your teacher. And it's some classes were the Socratic method of learning, but you're also raising your hand and waiting to be called on, etc. And some of these classes I was taking freshman year, like it's popcorn style. You're just like speaking up and then piggybacking off. And I was literally like, wait, should I just like jump in now? Like, is that like, do I wait for someone? And it was just so like little things like that. And then separately, then there's also just like the social culture. You know, there are certain things that I don't know, my friends and I talked about, but maybe in like smaller group settings. And in my dorm room in this like co-ed suite, we're just like talking about anything and everything. And I'm like, wow, this is like a different culture, you know, even though I grew up, you know, but like that was only until I was 12. Right. So it's, so there was a moment of that. And then it actually persisted. Like, even though I mean, I loved my college years and I made great friends and everything. I thought I had kind of figured it out, but then I started working and the thing that like was the hardest to get used to is in Korea, you don't call people who are more senior than you by their first name. There's like a very formal honorific language. And I was like the head of my group. I'm supposed to just call him Craig. Like, (laughs) should I say Mr. or something? Yeah. And, you know, also it was interesting to like learn how to manage up and push back and, you know, certain things that just was 
it was just so antithetical to like what I grew up around. And so I really had to push myself out of my comfort zone to start speaking up in a way that I wasn't used to, that initially it felt very rude to me actually. And also it's a little bit more communal in Korea. And so even for like group projects, you're kind of like giving all these other people credit. You're like, oh yeah, like we did this together and -and so-and-so did this and so forth. And I quickly realized actually my boss had a conversation with me being like, you know, I just want to show you the difference here. And it was also interesting because it's not just a cultural difference, but it's actually also, especially in finance, a difference between like men and women, right? Yeah. Yeah. And she actually called me in and she was like, let me just compare how you let me know you worked on this project Mm. versus other colleague of yours who was a white male, right? And she was like, listen to his voicemail to me, right? And actually we had worked on this together. And he was like, hey, I worked on this. I finished it. I think you're going to love it. A totally different like tone of voice. For me, my voicemail to her was like, we finished this project. Let me know if you have any questions. You know, we tried our best. Like it was just so different. And it was such a interesting, illuminating moment for me. So it took, you know, I think a couple years of working to really kind of figure out some of these things. And of course, it still comes up because Mm -hmm. I think there's also just things that we as women, which is why I love what you're doing, have sacked up against us, right? And just even if you're doing all these things, there's like biases in the workplace and all of that. So yeah, but I do think that bicultural and bilingual upbringing and negotiating between two cultures has been such a privilege and has informed a lot of what I do. Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. In 2020, I was struggling with some debilitating health stuff. I just got off birth control and suddenly I had acne, mood swings, breast tenderness, and really painful periods. I tried so many things, but the one thing that worked was something called seed cycling. I know you're probably thinking, seed cycling? What the heck is that? It's a natural way to support your hormones using four specific seeds throughout your cycle. The challenge is that seed cycling can be a little complicated to do and kind of time consuming. So I decided to make an organic seed cycling product that is so easy to use. We make it effortless for anyone to get started today. It's called Bia, and it's a super easy way to add something powerful to your diet to support your hormones, regulate your cycle, and bring back balance. To learn more about Bia and join our community with thousands of incredible women all over the world, go to BiaWellness.com, and that's spelled B-E-E-Y-A Wellness.com. And check out the show notes for our promo code to get $10 off your first purchase. Thanks so much for listening, and now let's get back to today's episode. You know, I'm curious, was there anything in those corporate finance days? I mean, even if someone's listening and they're not in finance, I'm sure it resonates with them still that you had to unlearn kind of now running your business that you might have been trained in your mind being in that kind of culture that you now needed to like let go of being an entrepreneur. I know it's been 11 years, but I'd be curious to hear your perspective. Oh my goodness. The biggest one is so after being in finance, I wanted to try management consulting And, you know, I was at Accenture and the Boston Consulting Group. And in all three places that I've worked across, you know, different industries, even at client sites, et cetera, I remember one thing various managers told me over the years, and they would say perception is reality. So 
your work matters, but it's also how you project yourself and all of that. And I have to say, in running a business, I'm sorry, but <laughs> perception is not reality. Your cash flow is your reality. Your actual tangible output is your reality. Your mm-hmm. customers, if they're coming back and being loyal customers, that's reality. You know, your product quality and what's actually in it, that's reality. And so these are some of the things that not only was it easy to quickly unlearn, but it's in our culture, I really wanted to implement where I think that when you insist perception is reality, you really reward a certain type of person potentially only versus letting people's skills and work output and thoughts and ideas, no matter how it's presented, right? Some people could be more introverted or extroverted, louder, quieter, et cetera, or just have more humor when they talk or not. Embracing the merit of the actual output. I think that's been something I really wanted to emphasize in our culture. And it's made a really big difference because it really speaks to just things getting done really, really well versus always celebrating just like one type of way you're presenting yourself. Mm-hmm. Gosh, I that really resonates with me because one thing that I, I mean, there's many things that I'm kind of unlearning from my time in finance and corporate is FaceTime, right? Like we were trained to not only do good work, right? That was important, but just to work all the time and be in like one position on your desk And what I realized quickly, and of course, having that work ethic is so helpful in maybe like getting the business off the ground. But now that we're kind of in another stage, I'm realizing if I'm sitting here and working 12 hour days on my computer, which like my body is used to, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to move the needle for the business, right? And like me stepping away, taking breaks, shifting the daily work ethic. I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but like just being on my computer for literally 12 hours, like that is not going to move the needle in the business. I have to kind of create space. So that's kind of what I've been working through. And I've seen the results happen. So you you sometimes are like, but like when you have a business, yes, you're working all the time, but mentally you're always thinking about it, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean you're legitimately on the computer, like in banking, right? 8 a.m. to like 12 a.m. Like that's just not sustainable. So it's just interesting, you know, going back to your comment of perception isn't always reality. It's like, Are you focusing on the right items? Are you moving the business? Are you profitable? Are the customers happy? Is your product working? All those basics are like the fundamentals, not just sitting there and working for no reason. You know what I mean? On the stupid stuff, I think. Exactly. (laughs) So I'm curious, you know, you've had this, we've kind of highlighted over your career of like working in finance, going to business school, working in consulting. You've always had skincare kind of in the background, and that's been kind of one of your passions. So I love to hear like, when did that passion kind of start and maybe your background when it comes to supporting your own skin? Yeah. So I have very severe eczema and you can't really cure yourself of eczema. So I still have eczema, but I've really learned to manage it. When I was growing up, I mean, it was visible, bleeding, painful rashes. And it really affected my life because it was like every morning I would wake up and I'm like, oh gosh, is my arm going to be bleeding or not? You know? And I became very self-conscious and I would wear long sleeves in the summer, you know, all these different things. And it really, I felt so out of control with my life, right? Like I was like, when you don't know how to take care of your health and you don't know the cause and effect, it just, even if I'm having the best of days, there's like a little cloud over my head where I'm like, 
I just don't know like why my body's reacting this way. And so, you know, my mom is my hero for just growing up. She took me everywhere to try to help me figure this out. And that's why I'm also such a huge fan of your brand because I really do believe also you are what you eat and, you know, what we eat does affect our endocrine system and all of that. And so, yeah, and skin is, I always view skin as it's our body's largest organ and it's a window into what's happening internally. And so the quality of the products you're using topically and all these other elements in your lifestyle, it's so important. But yeah, so when I was finishing up high school, I, out of desperation for my own skin, attended skin school. And it wasn't so that I can pursue a career as an esthetician. I was like, I need to figure out, I need some scaffolding in analyzing what's going on with my skin. And so when I went to skin school, honestly, it was like I had entered the matrix because before skincare was just complete guesswork and understanding the histology of how your skin works. And literally, I didn't realize that there was an actual structure in my skin that reacts like this and and so forth. So that started this like real hunger to learn more. And I wasn't able to transform my skin like right away, but it started this really deep curiosity to learn more. And back then there was no real internet. So in college, like I'm doing, you know, I was like a liberal arts major, but in the background, I'm going to the stacks and taking out like skincare books and like medical books and like reading clinical studies and just like getting my hands on everything. Meanwhile, I'm also doing like hands-on things, right? So like my dorm room always looked like an apothecary. I just had so many products and I was actually figuring out ingredient pattern analysis, even if this product isn't marketed as a soothing product, I'm actually seeing that it has these ingredients in it where people are leaving comments and reviews or just general like sentiment about the product that it's soothing and oh, how interesting. So is this product. So I started to, I just became the skincare detective. And meanwhile, I'm also doing facials for friends and family, just like on the weekends, night, you know, whenever I could. So this was just something that I thought, this is my passion. This is my hobby. And, you know, when you talk to random people like I knew in college and friends I have from even consulting and banking days, they're, it's like so funny because they're, they're always like, do you remember that one conversation you have with me where you were like, you really need to wear SPF or like, let me give you, I was like that skincare person. But I always thought that's something in my personal life and my career and my job is something that's this other thing. And I didn't connect the dots that I can like do the two in one. That always in the background since those high school days, as I started to figure out, and actually over a few years after first going to skin school and really meticulously figuring out my skin, there was a breakthrough. A few years later, I really figured out how to take control over my skin and it changed my life. I cannot emphasize enough the joy I had from just taking control of my own skin. And that in turn made me so passionate about helping others with their skin because I, to this day, like have a soft spot. Anyone who's dealing with anything with their skin, acne, super sensitive skin, redness, oily skin, you name it, or even just, I didn't know how to take care of my skin. Now I have 20 years of damage. Like, what do I do? I'm like, I know, I know how it feels to feel like not 
at the best place with your skin and there are solutions, right? And so that passion was always there. And through business school and the various jobs, nights and weekends, I'm still doing skincare in whatever capacity I can, facials, research, et cetera. Yeah. And then in 2012, like when I connected the dots and I was like, oh my gosh, this is the business I should do. I could not stop thinking about it. Like I could not get it out of my head for like weeks at a time. I was like so excited to to start on this. So I went to HR at BCG at the time and I was like, once I finish this project, I really need to just start this business. And basically, and it was really just to bring the most innovative solutions over from Korea to the US because I was like, it's 2012, it's a globalized world. How do we not have these incredible innovations coming out of Korea because Korea really is behind the scenes in the the beauty industry, like a mecca for skincare innovation. Like brands from all over the world go to Korea to make products, especially in skincare. Korea is the number one exporter of skincare innovation. That's a whole other conversation of why is Korea so advanced. But I was like, people are just not having access to a fulsome tool chest on what they can do with their skin. And I want to bridge that gap. And yeah, like the HR team made it very easy. They were like, open door policy back, you know, that's the book. Yeah. But in a sense, you know, it was interesting because I didn't have the savings I wanted. I didn't have my business model and business plan all mapped out. I just kind of went for it. And I think that gave me the courage to just go for it. And then in those early years, like I mentioned, like it's so important to figure out your business model. But yeah, like skincare was just something that was this persistent passion for a very long time before I made the leap. So that's what I'm curious about. I'm always interested in, you know, you're doing this passion. It's funny how we have blind spots too, because at the time, you know, you mentioned earlier that you didn't think that this could be a business, right? We all thought, especially at that time, like entrepreneurship wasn't as common. And you're like, I just have a job. I don't hate it, but I'm doing well and I'm making money. I'm going to stay here. So what were maybe some of the, maybe one, two or three highlights that kind of were reminding, not even reminding you, were giving you the inspiration to kind of help you make that leap, right? Because you don't go from zero to a hundred of, all right, I'm going to do it. What were some of those guiding posts that you think set you up to be like, oh my gosh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go into HR. It's done. Because we all have those moments and I love hearing the lead up to that. Yeah. I love that question because you're so right. It is hard to make that switch from the well-trodden path of like security and everything that you thought life would be to like, oh my goodness, like what is this unknown territory I'm going to go into? Not to mention, you know, when you start looking at that territory, I'm like, where do I even begin? Right. Mm -hmm. And I think, yeah, three things I can point to is one, when I was in business school, the school was super supportive of entrepreneurship at the time. I went to business school 2008 when the financial crisis hit. And so there was just like this kind of rallying around like entrepreneurship is like a very viable path and so forth. So I tried my hand actually at a Korean fashion startup, but for various reasons, it wasn't a scalable model and there were issues with the business model. And so it would have been okay as like a business that would stay a very small kind of like cult business. Those businesses are great. That's just not what I wanted. I really wanted to go all in with the business where I could really scale it. And so 
you know, before business school was ending, I kind of was like, okay, I'm not going to do this after school. So that like little experience gave me some confidence because I was like, okay, that's interesting. I went to Korea and sourced like 50 designers. Some were like winners of various awards. And I had a couple of trunk shows and things sold out. And like, that was okay. I could, I could figure that out. The second moment was I started really meeting a lot of people who were doing things in this entrepreneurial space. So whether it's actual founders or service providers for founders or these networking events where all sorts of people in this entrepreneurial space kind of come and have conversations. So it was interesting to kind of be like, oh, and I would ask a lot of questions like, what is your life like? Like, what are your hours like? How do you feel? So that was also helpful. And then the third thing is... I had a really good friend who also was interested in starting a business. So every Wednesday after business school, when I was at BCG, every single Wednesday, unless like there was a huge conflict, we were very committed to meeting up and we would meet up and actually explore various startup ideas. We approached it very analytically looking back. Like we were like, what space could be something that we can disrupt you know, what is an area that has higher barriers to entry? So it's a more protected space. Like we were very analytical about it, then actually spent the next several weeks like researching, etc. Even though I didn't go with any of those ideas that we were like kick kicking back and forth. And it really only I only felt that final kind of desire to take the leap when I landed on, oh my goodness, this is what I love. I should just do this. Still those weekly conversations and digging into things started kind of exercising my muscles of like looking into things and, and envisioning this lifestyle. And I had like a little practice run of also changing my lifestyle a bit. Cause I was also like, so certain businesses, you need funding out the door especially like tech platforms where you can't really monetize until you scale. So you just need to raise money. Other businesses like beauty businesses, I believe, because it's a consumer goods oriented business, it's a little more meat and potatoes. I really believed even before starting Peach and Lily that I didn't want to raise funding out the door because I was like, even if it's hard, we're going to have to figure out how to make it a sustaining for-profit business because that's the way a healthy business needs to be set up. And so then I quickly realized, okay, but then it would be all of my savings and everything that goes into it until your cash flow catches up to like your sales. And I was like, okay, so I'm going to have to have a lifestyle change. So a year before I launched Peach and Lily, I kind of had like a little practice run where I was like, I won't buy that bag. I won't go on that trip. Maybe I'm like cooking more. You know, I started to exercise that muscle a little bit too. And then I quickly realized when I started Peach and Lily, like I had business school loans. I wasn't paying myself for a couple of years. I went from like a pretty comfortable job to quickly realizing like everything is more expensive in like the startup investment than I thought it would be. At one point I had like $7 to my name. You know, I realized it's so much harder than I actually thought it would be and so much more expensive. But, you know, those earlier little things I did, did give me that confidence once I connected the dots and like, this is my passion to just kind of go for it. Oh, I love this so much. I get so many women reaching out and they're like, 
I'm ready for the leap, but I don't have an idea. And so much of what you've said, which I just want to underscore because it also is similar to how I kind of came up with my own business, Bia, but a few things that really stand out are you were meeting other founders and just kind of learning about them and what they're doing. Like even before this podcast, I was throwing dinners when I was still in, actually I was in tech at the time with other founders. I was getting women together and I was like, they're just like me. They're kind, they're passionate about something. You know, I always had this idea that you had to be and look a certain way in entrepreneurship. And it was really nice because I was seeking out, wanting to seek out women who were like me and I found them and I was like, oh, okay, that's what their life is like. So you also did that. And also, you know, really exercising that muscle of opportunities and possibilities. When I realized, and after meeting all these women and actually starting this podcast was a big inspiration, I was like, there's never the right time to make the leap. So let me start thinking about ideas. And similar to you, I had like a journal. I would write down different things. And my husband, I think he was my boyfriend at the time, like every week I was like, can I just share with you? Like, cause he's entrepreneurial too. I was like, let me just share some ideas. And none of those were it similar to you. You know, the business kind of came from my own, what I was going through at the time. But I think you're opening up your mind to possibility and thinking about things differently. So when the timing is right, it kind of clicks and you kind of see that. And I love I love that that was also similar in your, similar in your life. And also, I want to talk about the financial piece because that is really interesting that a year before you were kind of shifting your life. But I guess, how did you really think about your savings and investing in the business? Did you give yourself two years of runway of like, okay, I've had these jobs. I have the saving. I'm going to put X amount here. I still have to pay for my rent, my business loans. Like, how did you think about all of that? If someone who is listening right now is maybe looking to make the leap and might not be thinking about their budget or their runway that they might have and what they want to start with. Yeah. So in my head, I definitely was like, I want at least two years of savings to support my lifestyle, like just bare bones, like my rent, food, transportation, like no more cabs. I'm taking the subway always, like, you know, stuff like that. And then I also want a certain amount to invest in the company. But the reality is that it kind of all went out the window because the amount to invest in the company was so much greater than I had anticipated. And so the runway I had was just like not enough. And so that was something that was very interesting. And I just got so much inspiration reading the book by the Nike founder, Shoe Dog, where it's just been obviously, you know, Nike is a massive, massive leading company. But in those early years, I think a lot of startups have a very similar struggle in the sense that you see the demand, you see the customer loyalty, you see the customer excitement and the momentum. But there is just the reality of, the cash flow of the business does need to catch up. And so how do you maneuver in those earlier years where you're like, it's not, it's existential in the sense that like you need to keep the lights on for both your personal life and your business. But at the same time, you just know you can't give up on it because you see all the green lights on that this is going to work and this is working. And so I think negotiating that and navigating that is the tricky part in those startup years, because short of having a very healthy amount fundraised or a huge savings, I think that that's something that you just so commonly run into. And I think that's where 
in the business, like it required that necessity breeds so much creativity and resourcefulness. So for example, on the revenue side, it's like, okay, the fastest way we're going to solve this problem is we have to sell a lot more, right? But we have such a limited budget. So how do we market and how do we sell through in a very cost-efficient way? And so you are A, B, testing everything, like getting really scrappy. And we had this mantra early on, you're getting smarter every month. No matter what, we're learning, getting smarter, and like figuring out how to do things more efficiently. On the cost side, you're like, okay, another smart way to do things is keep your costs super, super, super tight. So that also gets like a lot of kind of scrappy resourcefulness as a DNA built into the business. And I actually think those early years of, I don't think it's a smart idea when the green lights aren't there and there are lots of red flags saying this business is something isn't resonating, right? It's just way too hard to get those customers. Like customers aren't coming back. People aren't leaving positive reviews. Like that takes a servant too, to be like, I don't think, I think we need to change something about the product or the service or whatever. But when there are those green lights, then I actually think even though it's a challenge, it's a very unique and special opportunity to really navigate that and use that as a foundation to instill this DNA in your business that makes you such a strong business. Because even now, 11 years later, our company culture is so entrepreneurial and we are so scrappy and resourceful. Of course, we take bigger swings and you know our brand Peach and Lily and Peach Slices have grown to become the top 10 skincare brands at Ulta Beauty. So it's a bigger business, but it doesn't mean that just because you're a big, bigger business, you're like, whatever, let's just try like any marketing initiative for whatever dollar budget. And like, we're not even being smart about it. Like it's still really vetting through, is this the smartest way to deploy and test and see and how you scale? And so the bottom line is, is number one, it's it's great to think about that runway in your personal life. And I think that it's really always a smart idea to plan for that, for sure. But number two, also don't be surprised when you feel like you're running out of money <laughs> and just believe in yourself that as long as those green flags or lights are there, you can get so creative and resourceful on both the revenue and cost side to navigate through those early years. Yeah, I love this. You know, obviously you're now 11 years in the business and looking back, right? Like you said, you had $7 to your name at one time. And I think the beautiful thing about, especially when you're self-funding a business, like you mentioned, is it forces you to be creative. It forces you to look at the numbers. It pushes you to be like, how do we make more sales? How do we want to manage the costs? And you know, even for me, I am not even really paying myself yet, but my motivation is how can I bring in help? So what is the next revenue goal we have to hit so I can hire someone with that salary? Because I know there's potential. And like you said, seeing those green lights are very important because I think sometimes people stay in businesses too long that running a business is hard in general, but you do know if things are kind of flowing a little bit, right? Versus like you were saying, those red lights. Like I think that's also important to reflect on. But going back 11 years, you know, when you had $7 in your name, were you ever scared or did you know like this will work out? Like what was your mental state at the time? I don't think. I was ever scared of things not working out, but I was definitely, 
I guess if I thought about it for too long, I probably would have gotten very scared. But I think all of that just kept me, it was like that that necessity and desperation because I was so passionate about it and I saw it was working. So I was like, oh no, we're going to make this work. That fueled in me this, I guess, action, right? And the action was pretty extreme. I wish I could say like I had a balanced life, like it wasn't. I was basically working seven days a week and sleeping. I mean, other than sleeping, I was working. But again, it's because I didn't have the money to be able to hire other people. So for example, like back then, bloggers were a big thing. And I was like, okay, I don't have the money right now to have a warehouse. So part of the day, I need to be fulfilling orders. So that just takes time. Like I need to do it. Even with our interns, like we always paid our interns. I'm like, maybe now I can afford this one person as a temp help. And then the other part of the day, I'm like, okay, basically we need to market. And what I want to do is I'm going to research a hundred bloggers every day and really get to know them and send them packages and like reach out. And so I'm like, that's just like maybe five, six hours where I'm like sending messages. When we're fulfilling orders, I want customers to know how much we believe it's a privilege to care for their skin. So in those early years, I was custom handwriting cards to every customer, right? And that just takes time. So So much time. (laughs) So much time. And I was like, those details, there are things you can compromise on, but things like the customer experience, the quality of the products, like no way. So I think the existential kind of like moments led to more just like fuel and passion and like action. And that's where I say like, it does get hard because there are just going to be moments where you have to wear like 17 different hats and, you know, it's not easy by any means and it's very, very demanding, but if you love it and you're passionate about it and your business is like, it's a green light, let's keep going, then you want to do it. And honestly, like when things got really hard, it might be like one in the morning and I'm like, oh my goodness, I still have to do these things today because I just know that like I would map out a little action plan, right? I'm like, to grow sales by this much so our lights don't turn off. Here are the different marketing activities I need to do every day. And if you don't do it, it's like the lights turn off. So there's like this motivation. And at 1 a.m. and when I'm like, I can't see straight anymore, what I actually did was I we would have, you know, like an email listserv where people can email customer reviews, like comments, but also questions. And I would read them. And when people are like, oh my God, this changed my skin. This was amazing. I would literally then just like turn on like amped up music. And I would like get so emotional being like, wow, we're actually helping people. This is why I'm doing this and get that energy again. And so, yeah, I think it can get scary for sure. But I also think that when you see the green light there, you know, fundamentally it's going to work. It's a matter of having enough fuel to like make sure the car doesn't stop before, you know? Totally. Gosh, I love that. I also have this, I have like a a photo album in my phone. So anytime we get like a customer email, and even actually when I started this podcast, because podcasting, like I don't have a journalism degree. This is me just doing it because I love it. I think these conversations are so important. And I would take screenshots of people's reviews, right? And like, even for the product, like I take screenshots of those emails. And whenever I'm feeling like it's a tough day, I've been working a lot, I need that inspiration. I would just similar to you review it. And I think so much of 
And listen, I'm only like two and a half years in my journey, but what I'm realizing, I'm curious to get your thoughts. So much of running a business when you do see that green light is like making sure you stay inspired and you continue the momentum. So it's like, what are the hacks that you need in your life? Like one of them is reading customer reviews, right? That fuels you. Any other hacks or things that you do that kind of help build that momentum? Because when you do see that green light, like there's always another milestone to hit and you can't, you're always working and it's always a beautiful thing, but anything else that kind of helps you keep the momentum or stay inspired? Because sometimes, at least for my life, you know, there were weeks, especially in the early days, like I was very similar to your story, actually. And I just felt like it was exhausting for me a little bit, but I didn't want to stop because I was so excited. So I don't know. I'm, I know I'm blabbing a little bit right now and I'm saying a lot of things, but I guess my question to you is, you know, outside of reading customer reviews, any other hacks that you have in your life that really helped you stay inspired and to continue to build that momentum? Yeah, I would say that, and this kind of gets into this note of self-care, right? Mm -hmm. And for me, I like to be not as prescriptive about self-care because everyone is different, right? It just takes awareness. So as an example, right now, now I'm in my 40s, I have a toddler and I'm like nine weeks away from having my second baby, right? So physically speaking, there's just no way I could have been doing the things I was doing 11 years ago. Literally, I think my body just like wouldn't be able to keep up. And so self-care looks a little different for me today. The reason I bring this up is because I think over this journey, it took getting to know myself to understand what self-care means for me. And it was very dependent on my life at this at, at that time. So in those early years, you know, I think, yes, I was pushing myself and I don't want to glorify like not sleeping and things like that. However, for me at that phase in my life, I wasn't burning out though. That was something I was able to handle and that I wanted to. In fact, I actually think I would have been more stressed if somebody were like, no, you need to like turn your laptop off and go to bed right now. I wouldn't be able to see because I'm like, I just have so much, I'd rather just get this done. And at that phase in my life, what self-care so I think the goal is it's a marathon and you just don't want to burn out. Yeah, exactly. And so it's you really need to be self-aware of like what are the things that keep you going in a healthy, excited, passion-filled way. And back then, you know, it was like what really kept me going was connecting to the consumer. The other thing that kept me going was I had a lot of calls with my family back home in Korea and also some of my closest friends who just were kind of my cheerleaders, right? So I would, if like doubt creeps up or I don't know, like I have questions, I would just call my support group and I would just talk it out and be like, guys, like, oh my gosh, like, do you think this is going to work out? Yeah. I know it is, but I'm also kind of like, what do I do? And like, you know, my family would be so supportive and say like, first of all, Let's think worst case scenario. Even if it doesn't work out, I felt very privileged to be in a spot in my life where I could go back and get some sort of job where, you know, they were like, yeah. so it's not like you're going to actually not have a home because you can't pay your rent, you know, because I was like delinquent on my rent as well. And I would talk to my landlord and be like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Like, can I pay it next month? And he really worked with me. It was having that support group. And then sometimes it was like, I'm too tired. I'm not doing a walk around Central Park. I'm not doing anything physical. Like my version of self-care is going to be plopping on the couch and turning my brain off, vegging out to like some show that like requires zero thinking, right? And so 
it's finding those spots. And I try meditation supposed to be that never worked for me. I I just like fall asleep, you know? (laughs) And so I I do think self-care can't be prescriptive because everyone is different. Every phase of your life is different. I think the important bottom line is to just know you want to incorporate that self-care in so that you don't burn out as an entrepreneur, but it doesn't need to look like everyone else's plan. And for me today, just physically, I sleep way more because my body, like literally the hormones are just making me like super fatigued. But at the same time, the business also is in a different place now, but also my form of self-care is just different. Today, when it gets really tough. And, you know, also the tasks I'm doing are a little bit different today. So today, a lot of my role is supporting my leadership team and also thinking about really big strategic decisions. And I need a lot of headspace to kind of make sure I'm making the right call on something and gathering the right information. And so sometimes it's actually taking a walk and not thinking about anything and coming back to something, you know, it just looks a little different. And so I just want to mention that because I do think sometimes Along the journey, I would get frustrated because I'm like, oh my gosh, like I would get stressed about not doing self care the right way. And then I realized, oh my goodness, there's no formula. Like I know myself best and I should lean into the things that are making me feel like I'm not burning out right now versus what this article said. These are the 11 things we should do for self care, right? Mm-hmm. Gosh, I love that. And I love how you said, like in every life stage, your self-care looks different. And I think, you know, I I sometimes say this to my husband. I'm like, I don't know how I used to like not sleep, go to client dinners, wake up in the morning, work all the day, get on a plane and do another client meeting. I just think being in my 20s, my body was a little bit more resilient. But looking back, like I was getting sick all the time. And now, especially as the founder of a, a health company, you know, I have to talk the talk. I can't skip out on certain things. But what I love about what you said is, it's very specific to who you are. And for example, for me, one of the biggest pillars that keeps me mentally clear, not getting sick a lot is sleep. And, you know, I know at BIA, we do a lot of like health podcasts and movement. And obviously food is really important. So like for me, eating the right food and sleep is my hack. One thing that I've been lacking is movement. It's just, yes, I'm working all the time and that works for me. And I'm so excited about everything. So that, you know, once you figure out what works for you. And then you kind of layer on certain things, right? Like sleep, it took me two years to get into place. I'm finally eating three meals a day. And like maybe the next pillar is finally movement. I can now think about that. But I love how you said it looks different for everybody. And I think it just goes back to like, what keeps you feeling good? How do you even feel like, think about yourself? I didn't even think about myself in the 20s. We were talking about hormones before this podcast, I had horrible PMS and I just pushed through it. That was a red flag back in the day. So I think just even connecting with yourself is so important, especially we as women, because hormones dictate so much of how we feel every day. And it's changing every day, which I did not know before starting Bia. But I love that. That's so beautiful. And I actually would love to get your thought. I mean, there's so many questions here, but I want to talk about You've been doing this for 11 years. You're managing the company. You know, you have a two-year-old son. You're pregnant You're with a daughter that's coming soon. What are some ways, I don't like the word balance, but has your life shifted in any way having kids in terms of, has it changed you as an entrepreneur? Has it changed your perspective on life? I'd love to hear about this phase in your life and how having kids have really impacted you in whatever way it has. Yes. I think my 
superpower skill I've acquired is being a really good prioritizer that I actually think I'm like, wow, this is something I could have actually learned and benefited from even before having kids. Because ultimately, both in my you know personal life as a mom, my husband and I actually we work together. So as oh. a partner and wife, everything is sort of blended. And yeah. then also at work as, as a CEO, prioritization is so important. So mm-hmm. as an example, I think that it made me a better CEO because I think organizations need a clear strategy and a clear strategy is not clear when there's 17 priorities. That is just like a wish list of like, let's do everything. Mm-hmm. Prioritization is really saying, here are the top three needle movers. Here's what we're going after. We're going to go deep. We're going to do it well. We're going to go big on this. And that's a strategy. And that actually takes a lot of discipline to say no to so many other shiny things that might come up and how you might spend your time. And I think just like individual entrepreneurs or founders, an organization and individuals within an organization, it is unrealistic to say, I'm going to literally do everything because it's just going to be shallow and it's not going to really get done well. Organizations and groups and, and individuals and organizations get very confused when they don't have a North Star and they're just sort of very concretely, for example, like, I don't know, like we got this inbound inquiry for this partnership, should we do it or not? And that is going to take time away from something else. And if you don't have a clear strategy that you're mapping that against, then all of a sudden you say yes to everything and nothing is getting done and you're not going deep on anything. And so that also means emotionally letting some things go. So as an example, bringing this analogy into like my personal life, Would I love for my son's room to look like picture perfect and it could be in a magazine and it's like clean all the time and then he's in like the cutest outfits. I'm like somehow coordinating outfits with him and he's just, I don't know, in my mind, (laughs) that would be nice. Yeah. You know, and I just have this like picture of motherhood of like we're strolling down the street and I'm in this beautiful sundress and like it's not going to happen. His room is vaguely messy all the time. It's fine. It's clean, you know, like hygienically. And I have to just prioritize. And I'm like, you know, what's more important is there's a 30 minutes of like no phone time before his bedtime. That's a consistent routine. He knows he always gets up with us, et cetera. Like we just have to pick our spots and not just not pick the other spots, but emotionally let all those things go. Because I think once there's a little hang up on like, oh my gosh, I wish I could do that. And like, that makes me not good enough. Or maybe like, oh no, there's like a little tinge of, I wish I could. Once I've learned to kind of say, once I decide that's not important, not only do I need to not do it, but I need to like seriously not care about it and just like keep my headspace clear. And so, yeah, that kind of prioritization has been super helpful for me. Oh my God. I'm I'm laughing because right now it just resonates so much. I mean, we don't have kids yet, but the letting go of an emotional piece is like even in our house. We moved into this place two years ago. Everything is kind of set up except our room. And every day, every once a week, I'm like, we really should get this room together. You know, oh, and let me try to order stuff. But me and my husband are both entrepreneurs. We're busy. It's not a realistic priority, right? And it's like, it's just never going to get done. And he's like, listen, Yasmin, if it's a priority, we can do it. But it's not. And I think it's just like good enough. And I love what you said about dropping the emotional weight towards that. It's just like, 
in this part of my life, I'm just, it's not important. And I got to just like let it go versus always thinking, oh, I want that beautiful room with like the right curtains, you know, all that stuff. And I'm sure with a kid, I'd be saying the same thing that you're saying. But I love that, you know, you're creating space in your mind because especially as an entrepreneur, and I'm sure even having kids, it becomes more important. It's like there's only certain things you can focus on. And if you care about every little detail that isn't going to like really move the needle, you'll just feel overwhelmed and burn out. And I think you've been doing this for so long. So you're sharing how you keep sane and how you kind of continue to live your life fulfilled and happy and and still run your business. So I, I love that. So that's really great in terms of the positive aspects of having kids while managing your business just kind of keeps you a little bit more brute force on what really matters and what really doesn't matter, which is like, we could all use that in our life. I love that. But I'd love to kind of maybe end on a question. You know, you've been running your business for over a decade now. Did you ever think your business would be in the place today? And, you know, what would you maybe tell your younger self when you were hustling, trying to get different brands on your website at the time? But I'd love to just kind of get your thoughts on just reflecting back and thinking if you've ever would have thought you'd be kind of in the position you are today with your business. It's interesting because I think part of the challenge that I have that I'm like definitely working on is when you are running your own business. So when you are in school and there's more structured milestones and you're like high school graduation, that's the goal, made it, done. College. With a business, it's different because the milestones are not clear. And so it's interesting because I think each year I definitely would put in these milestones, just internal milestones of like, here are the growth goals. And you're just thinking a year out, but you're thinking like long-term, then it needs to be this, but it's more abstract. You know, when you're smaller, it's just so much more abstract. Like what is it going to be 10 years out? And what's interesting is now that the business has evolved a lot, you know, over the last five years, when we launched our Peach and Lily and Peach Slices brand. So we went from being a destination for Korean beauty, and we still have some Korean beauty products on our website that aren't our brands, but the vast majority of our business and our customer base is rallying around like Peach and Lily and Peach Slices. And that's been over the last five years. And to see that Peach and Lily is on track to become the number five skincare brand at Ulta Beauty this year. And Peach Slices, you know, within two years of launching in Ulta Beauty is a top 10 skincare brand. Within three months of launching at Walmart, it became number seven in its category, top 10. And then at CVS, it's a number one best-selling blemish solution. And both brands are just growing exponentially year over year. And on the one hand, me... 11 years ago, would look at the company today and be like, my mind would not even be able to grasp how much it's grown. But on the other hand, I do have a hard time celebrating some of those wins, right? Because it's always like, what's next? So even though the business today, like in hindsight, I'm like, wow, me today, I'm not necessarily like, wow, right? When I say these stats out loud, I am objectively, I'm like, that is pretty incredible. But I'm working on taking a moment to pause and reflect and have that wow moment and celebrate because honestly, I still am definitely very much like, okay, that's this year. That's great. But what about next year? Right. And I do think part of that is a little part of like a lot of entrepreneurs I talk to, that's like a very common thread. And I think part of like being an entrepreneur, like some of that's just like ingrained in us where we are just always like, okay, what's next? What's next? What's next? 
But I am, maybe it's in becoming a mom and I'm like being really celebratory of like my son's accomplishments, you know, his first steps, you know, things like that. I'm like, I don't do that enough for myself or for this business. And so, yeah, to answer your question, on the one hand, looking back, I would be blown away by where we are today. But on the other hand, I also know like me today, I'm more focused on tomorrow and I definitely want to be better at pausing and remembering like how I might have felt like 10, 11 years ago. So thank you for asking that question. (laughs) You know, it is interesting because that's something that I am working on too, right? And it's like my husband always reminds me and he asks me this question. He'll be like, look back at the past year and a half and what you've done. And it's nice to take the moment and reflect back. But yeah, like it's so easy to get caught up in what's next. And especially as your role as like the CEO, people are looking to you for those milestones. Okay, like what's the next initiative? Where are we going? And it's easy to get kind of stuck in that. It's a little comforting to hear from my perspective that that's something you're still working on. Because sometimes I'm like, am I not grateful? Like I'm so, I love what we're doing and I'm so excited about it. But it is important to like take the time to reflect and like give yourself a little pat on the back for how far you've come, right? Versus like always going, 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 which who knows how much of that was like ingrained in us in finance world. But I love that. But Alicia, this was so much fun. I feel like everything you said, if anyone's listening, she was so real in the behind the scenes of entrepreneurship. I feel like we need to do a part two, but I really, really enjoyed this and just so excited about everything you're building. So inspired by you and so appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was such a fun conversation and I just love the passion and energy that you're bringing to both your beautiful brand as well as just what you're doing for female founders and women and aspiring entrepreneurs. It's it's amazing. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.